When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. <laughs> There's Chuck Bryant. <laughs> Whoa. And this is Stuff You Should You've been working on your Chewbacca friend? No, no, it did sound like Chewbacca, especially that last bit. No, I haven't been working on it at all. It's all natural talent. Never had a lesson, <laughs> as Ferris Bueller said. Uh, Do you remember Ferris Bueller? Yeah, you know that sure. show that came out 50, <laughs> 60 years ago, back when we were cool? I was supposed to do that on uh, Movie Crush, and then my guests couldn't make it. And so I have like this great document of notes prepared, all about Ferris Bueller just sitting there going to waste. Oh, you should just read them. Read through them on one read of our Read through episodes. my notes? Yeah. <laughs> Ferris Bueller, sociopath or cool teenager? What'd you come up with? Well, Hodgman always has this sort of rant that uh, Ferris is a sociopath upon looking back. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm there, just like, come on, man. <laughs> there used to be like a whole blog for a little while about about that. Probably, they would yeah. like analyze film, like famous films like Top Gun. They basically pointed out how Maverick was like, this terrible person who got his friend killed and right. felt like no <laughs> no responsibility for it and everything. Yeah, people it's that a, we idolize. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty eye-opening. It's paradigm shifting, I guess you could say. Mm. And I think that's appropriate that we're talking about paradigm shifting blogs because there's a lot of paradigm shift involved with today's topic. And there's a lot of blogs, too, it turns out. About rewilding? Yeah, it's all over the place. <laughs> uh, it is, and we need to thank uh, our old pal Julia Layton makes an appearance here for the first time in a while. Yeah, welcome back, Leitz. Uh Helping us with this one. And um, I thought it was interesting because I think you and I both, I'm going to go ahead and speak for you, I think we both agree that rewilding, the concept of rewilding is pretty awesome. Pretty awesome, yes, I agree. Uh, <laughs> but as evidence from even some of the stuff that Julia sent us, like, there are some negative examples of, like, uh, rewilding that didn't go well. But I would argue, like, that's not even rewilding. And, no. And calling it that is is just hurts the cause. And yeah. then you sent me a thing that where a guy said, hey, calling things that that aren't rewilding hurts the cause. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was like, I need to back Chuck up today. I know he's thinking about something. I'm going <laughs> to send him something that backs it up. And I did. Uh, but rewilding, I guess we should just define so people are not angry at us for rolling that out 20 minutes in. Sure. Uh, but it is a term, uh, when was it coined here? 1998. 
I've seen all over the place. Somebody claims 85. Some, uh, another sure. dude claims that he coined it in 92. But I think the first time it appeared in the scientific literature was 98. Some old hippie said that uh, she coined it in 67. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The same hippie that claimed to have coined, well, turn it up, man. <laughs> uh, but here's the deal. And, you know, we can get into the the particulars, which we will. But generally, rewilding is in its simplest form, kind of returning nature back, turning it back over to nature to take care of itself. Because as Julia points out very aptly, like nature didn't need humans to come in and like all the things that you see human humans do for nature. Mm-hmm. It's because we had messed something up with nature. It's not because nature <laughs> exactly. was like, oh, we need you to step in. Like if humans had never been around, nature would be just fine. Yeah. So the point of rewilding is to designate huge swaths of earth mm-hmm. all over the earth. Huge tracts of land. Yeah, to to basically remove ourselves from and just let nature do its thing. Yeah. Because we just we screw everything up. Even when we try not to, we screw everything up. We can overmanage, we can undermanage, we can mismanage. There are very few things that we properly manage. And that's kind of like what's given the idea, the concept of rewilding like such a like uh, such great cachet like in the ecological community, both the scientific part of it and also mm-hmm. like this the popular part of it it's it's saying like well then let's just get humans out of the out of the management business and let nature do its thing i think it's a wonderful idea it is and you know it can uh it can encompass you know like plant growth and just kind of simple things like that mm-hmm. like where the things were once mowed down and mulched and like you know quote unquote cared for by humans yeah. letting that kind of run wild again all the way to the most extreme examples, which is something we touched on in the National Park episode that Julia brought up here, is like reintroducing a carnivore to the scene that had long been gone, like the wolves of Yellowstone, and letting them do their thing. And that's actually kind of a big part of one part of rewilding. Yeah, so you bring up something that you, you kind of referenced what I sent you earlier about um, misusing the term. Yeah. Like, it does encompass all of those things, but the only reason rewilding encompasses all of those things is because the scientific community is still trying to figure out exactly what rewilding is. They're yeah. trying to figure out the definition. They're trying to figure out what is not rewilding. Um, they're trying to figure out, like, what the best practices and best steps forward are for rewilding. Um, and so, because they're still figuring it out and because it's such a buzzword, anybody who's doing anything that has to do with restoration – whether it's like, you know, reintroducing some voles into a place where there's already voles. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, yeah, like you were saying, like adding uh, like some kind of grass or raising the mower height in a park right. to let more um, more of like the, the ground cover flower to help or the pollinators. Like currently that's technically rewilding, but really that's that's if you give it five more years probably those things will not be considered rewilding we'll have a much more coherent definition of it and hopefully a lot more data to back up the claims that rewilding makes because the big problem with it is it's a really great idea that we just need to know more about uh we're jumping in feet first and that that can be it could be dangerous, as we'll see, but I think more often than not, it could just be a failure and it could lose popular support. It'll it'll make people think it just doesn't work if we do it the wrong way a bunch of times to start. 
Right. And the, there are some really bad examples of rewilding. Well, again, I don't even like calling it rewilding because right. like one example that we'll, well, you might as well talk a little bit about a bad example is uh, um, South Georgia, not Georgia that we live in, but Georgia in Europe. <laughs> There's no reindeer in South Georgia. Where there were uh, whalers on this, uh, I think it was on an island. And they were like, well, you know, we love to eat reindeer. And so we're just going to put a bunch of reindeer on this kind of smallish island so we can hunt them as whalers and have something to eat. And it, it went terribly. And, you know, years later, I think they had to just go in and like slaughter 5,000 reindeer. Mm-hmm. That's not rewilding. That's just, that's a dumb idea, which is like bringing in an invasive species right. and plunking it down there. That's not rewilding at all, but it gets thrown in there as like, this is a bad example of rewilding. It's like, it's not rewilding. Right. And it wasn't ever intended to be rewilding. It took place at the turn of the century. And I think South Georgia Island is down by the Falklands, if I remember correctly, yeah. like b- below South America. So uh, okay. they brought well, it so in as like a, like a food source. Because yeah. like these, these Swedes or Norwegians were like, there's nothing down here that we've ever eaten before. We need some reindeer in this place. And they managed it just fine. Like they hunted the, the reindeer and the, the reindeer apparently were, were well checked or well managed. For a while. But then when they stopped yeah. hunting the reindeer and let nature take over, basically what we would do with rewilding, the reindeer ran wild and uh, it, it, things just went out of hand really, really quickly. So it was not an example of rewilding by anyone's definition, but it still serves as a cautionary tale about what can happen when you do something like just back out of the picture, that we do need to know more about what our role is to set up an ecosystem before we take our hands off of it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and also Julia points out, um, again, very aptly, that like when something like this hits the news, then you're going to have uh, animal activists and environmentalists when they hear the word rewilding project say, we can't do that. That led to the death, the slaughter of 5,000 reindeer. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it just gives it all a bad name. Um, So hopefully we'll try and give it a better name. Yeah, because again, I think it's a really great idea. We just need to know more about it. We need more science, everybody. Should we talk about biodiversity? Yeah, I think we should, because um, that's pretty much the basis of this whole thing. The whole idea behind rewilding, the whole reason it has so much support is because it's become painfully clear that the the damage that we've done to the earth is altering ecosystems in pretty much 100% unfavorable ways. <laughs> I don't think there's any way that we've damaged an ecosystem where we're like, oh, that actually worked out for the better. Well, maybe for humans and uh, conveniences, but yeah. But even still, now nature. we've reached, yeah, maybe that was true like 30, 40 years ago. Now we've reached the time where it's it's time to pay the piper. And now, even for us, we're suffering the consequences of damaging and altering ecosystems so dramatically that they can no longer function. And the, the, the point behind rewilding is to reestablish biodiversity in large part so that humans and other animals can survive on planet Earth in the next 100 years. Right. And then, you know, when you look into the the more, I guess, level-headed uh, descriptors of what rewilding can be and sort of the tenets of them, which we can get to later mm-hmm. in full, it, it's not, hey, let's let's dump a bunch of uh, mountain lions into Central Park. It's it's got to it has to work with humans as well. Uh, but as we'll see, there's there's a lot of places where there are not humans. And this is mainly what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And then in those places where there are some humans or whatever, it's like, we'll just, we'll get them out all the way, 100%. Yeah, but the, it has to work together. Like, 
unfortunately, you know, like it or not, humans are part of the ecosystem now. Mm-hmm. And it has to work for everyone. But right now, humans are just making it work for them in many cases. Yeah, and then, so even beyond also, you raise a good point, even beyond also the um, the fact that it's got to work for us, that we can't just coexist with mountain lions in Central Park, um, it, it has to, to work for us in the sense that, like, a lot of the places that are being, like, pointed to is, like, prime um, areas to be rewilded. Mm-hmm. If you like, if you look over to the right a little bit, there's some like right. sheep herder there saying, um, "This is my land that <laughs> yeah. I use my sheep to graze on," and sheep herds grazing is pretty much the antithesis of rewilding. So, what are we going to do with that guy? So, there's also one of the one of the things that they're figuring out with rewilding is how to involve from a at at, at least a like um an equally involve the community or the people who are going to be most affected by this, if not from a bottom-up. Everyone's saying, right. do not do top-down. Don't don't figure this out in the city and then come and tell the sheep farmers what to do. Like, that's not going to work. I think I saw somebody say, especially in Scotland, that is right. not going to work. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, yeah, I've been to Scotland. I know that's true. Yeah. Oh, boy. I had, like, this long string of Scottish obscenities I was about ready to belt out <laughs> in my worst accent. <laughs> Earned brew. <laughs> um, so as far as biodiversity goes, Julia uh, put it away that – I think really kind of hits it on the nose. It's, it's not just the quantity and variety of species and individuals. It's really the interactions within that ecosystem mm-hmm. and how they all work together. That's what biodiversity is. And ecosystems and biodiversity, they're meant to fluctuate. Like things happen in nature naturally and, and species may dwindle here and there when resources are a little more scarce and sometimes they're not thriving like they should, but they're still built for that. Mm-hmm. What they're not built for is human triggered biodiversity loss. And this is what we've seen humans do over and over and time and time again. And that just makes ecosystems kind of crumble under pressure to, to live and do their thing. Yeah. And there's just, it, it's unequivocal that um, that we ha- are facing terrible l- a loss of biodiversity all over Earth. The Living Plant Index said that between 1970 and 2012, Ooh, 58% of the world's fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds, and mammals all disappeared. Like, just gone. Goodbye. Yeah. All of those species had That's gone extinct. scary. Yeah. So, um, the, like that when that happens like you were saying these these the way that 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 um ecosystems have like evolved over time is that like they function as a as a net as a web as like a, a bunch of interconnected parts that create something greater as a whole and then that whole works together with other similar holes to create something greater and it keeps going on to this macro scale until you reach like planet level so you're going from like you know Dormouse to planet level, mm-hmm. all following basically the same path. And when you lose biodiversity, you're bound to lose species that are performing really important, really valuable functions yeah. that affect um, and support a bunch of other different kinds of species. So you lose those other species, but then you also lose what are called the services that that ecosystem provides. Right. Everything from preventing floods and erosion to preventing forest fires, wildfires, mm-hmm. um, um, speeding up the carbon sequest- sequestration, um, speeding up oxygen production, like all these things that, that the planet needs to live we evolved on planet Earth, so we need those too. And we've right. also, whether we realize it or not, built our economy taking those things 
for granted. Um, and so, fortunately, the um, Office of uh, Economic Development um, put together a, uh, a, a paper that cited 125 to 140 trillion dollars mm-hmm. worth of these services are produced by nature per year. Right. They put a which, number on it. Which on its face it sounds like a lot of money, right? It is. The global gross domestic product, all of the money produced by all the goods and services produced on planet Earth in 2020 only equaled 85 trillion. So on the high end, nature produces services that are worth nearly twice of global GDP in a whole year. And so now you're starting to bring in the conservatives. They're like, oh, okay, I hadn't considered that. <laughs> Let's talk about that too. So there's there's basically no one who wouldn't benefit from right. a healthier, uh, more biodiverse planet. And uh, I, I feel like we've reached the point for a break. What do you think? Right after I say one quick soapboxy thing. Sure. It sort of echoes back to what I pointed out in the Yellowstone episode is this this wonderful macro long view of the world that you embrace and I embrace. That's mm-hmm. uh, that's the problem because in the short term, people are like, sure, but what about this one thing I can do now? Right. What about all of this crypto I can mine today? Right. Uh, not to get into all that, good Lord. But um, it, it, people need to take a longer view of things. And I think humans are just, unfortunately, want to look at the the five bucks right in front of their face that they can make, you know? Chuck, it feels a lot like we're waking up. You and me? Y- yes, but I, I, think, <laughs> I think that's a big point. I think you and I are very mainstream people, and I think we're waking up uh, even more than we had before. And I think that that's usually reflective of, of people in general. I think that people are starting to wake up more as a group, as a collective. Mm-hmm. And you just see so much less like greenwashing and PRBS. Like people don't buy it anymore. People, I think people are, are starting to understand on the whole just yeah. how important this is. I yeah, really feel I think that younger way. generations continually do that through yep. through time. And it's uh, it's happening. So. Yeah, that's a good thing, and I agree. Shout we out should, Gen Z. We should take we should take that break. Go Gen Z, and whatever follows you. I don't even know what my daughter is. I don't either. I'm not sure if they've named that generation yet, because right now it's Generation Very Selfish. No, <laughs> but that's well, they're how, very young. Six years old. Yeah, yeah. Six year olds are um, Generation Temper Tantrum. <laughs> no, she's not much of a tantrumer, but anyway. Oh, that's good. Uh, let's take that break, and we'll be right back. Okay. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for time tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. 
That's right, there's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! Hey everybody, it's time you heard about Squarespace. Squarespace has the tools you need to create and sell your own website, whether it's an online course or custom merch. Squarespace has you covered. That's right. Courses is a great program. You can start with a professional layout that fits your brand, upload video lessons to teach techniques and skills, and tailor your course with a powerful Fluid Engine editor. That's right. With Fluid Engine, which is a next generation website design system, by the way, it's never been easier for anyone to unlock unbreakable creativity. That's right. And don't forget the commerce side, because after that, you can charge a one time fee or you can even sell a subscription. Yeah. So turn your creativity into income with Squarespace courses. And right now, go to squarespace.com stuff for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code STUFF to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Hey, everyone. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Hey, before we get going, can I say one quick thing? Mm-hmm. And this is, I am always very sad when I see that, like, Jogger in California, Southern California, is attacked and mauled by mountain lion. Like, that is a tragedy for that family. Mm-hmm. Um, but my favorite thing is when those stories end with, and that's what happened, and that's too bad, and that's a mountain lion doing what a mountain lion does, and not, and they hunted it down and killed it. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Speaking of releasing mountain lions into Central Park, which I doubt if they were ever there anyway. Well, I think that's that's one of the big tenets of rewilding is is like there there's a push that of converting. So I was talking about the sheep sheep herders in Scotland and what mm. are they gonna do? Ooh. Well, some people say, well, you can actually there's stuff called nature based economies and you can change what you do to make money. Um, if you are getting into rewilding your land, you could start basically holding safaris. And that's um, that 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 illustrates two things. One, there's a lot of money to be made. I've seen um, I've seen that some farmers have reported making as much, if not more, than they did farming. That they do now that they're doing like eco tourism on their old on their land that's been rewilded. Oh, it's interesting. Sure, but but then also it also shows you the role of humans in this. Like we are meant to be like guided on a tour in a very like. Um, arranged visit mm-hmm. to these areas. Mm-hmm. It's not like this area is wild. Just do whatever you want in it. 
It, right. It's extremely well managed, but what you're managing in this case is the humans, not the wildlife, not right. the flora, the fauna. You're keeping people out. No hunting, no farming, no grazing your livestock, no just like going camping there. I'm not sure about that last part, but I, I get the impression that humans are meant to just be kept out of it rather than the animal populations are, are managed. It's the humans that are. Yeah, I think, I don't know how rewilders feel about it, but as a camper, I think if you do it right, then uh, you, you shouldn't be harming the ecosystems that you're in. But yeah. someone might argue that like, hey man, just setting a tent up <laughs> like on the ground harms the ground. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you zoom in far enough with a microscope, you could probably back that up. Yeah, like I crushed a worm with my yeah. big body. So then I slept in a hammock. Right. But, but and what are you going to give that worm's family now? <laughs> uh, a small sum of money or sure. maybe some dirt? They would probably prefer dirt, especially if it was really good dirt. Soil or soil from my body? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Just take off your clothes and roll on the ground and say, I'm sorry, worm. And then they said, well, and you just killed two more of us. <laughs> uh, say, let's get off of this. This is why humans have to remove themselves from the wilderness. Let's move on, please. Okay. Uh, we should talk about the three C's because uh, this was sort of an early descriptor on rewilding, which is cores, corridors, and carnivores. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that, and this has a lot to do with like reintroducing wolves to Yellowstone, carnivores having an apex predator in an area is awesome and super healthy for that area. Uh, they control and they regulate that food chain like a champ and they need a lot of room though. And so uh, it's called a core reserve, like their area, uh, if they're going to thrive a lot. And when that core reserve shrinks, then all of a sudden they're isolated. That's going to harm them. And then that's going to have that trickle down effect that we talk a lot about uh, here on planet earth. Now there are a lot of, cores that are too small. So the idea is, all right, why don't we connect these cores with corridors mm -hmm. to allow them to, to keep moving? And this can look anything like, I sent you that one thing. I know that we've talked about these before. It's the coolest thing when they make like a, 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 a land bridge mm -hmm. for animals to cross a highway without getting killed or go under like an overpass or an underpass. Like that could be a corridor at its most sort of fundamental or like literally sort of rejoining land yeah. that was not joined before because of human interaction. Yeah. There's a big there's a big push for that because yeah, there's plenty of cores around, but if they're disconnected, then there's not gonna be enough um to support like a healthy ecosystem. And those like apex predators are gonna get stressed and it's gonna stress out the whole ecosystem. They don't have anywhere to go. But if you connect two small ones through a corridor, all of a sudden they can kind of go back and forth and, you know, the, the one, this one small place regenerates in their absence and then they go to the other one and then they go back to the first one and the second one regenerates while they're gone. Like, that, that's a really great idea because it, it also kind of shows that spirit of, like, not giving up. It's like, oh, the cores are so small. What are we going to do? I guess nothing. It's like, no, you connect the cores. And then you can also look at it on an even bigger scale. Like, a good example of a core, the ideal version of a core or close to it, is a, an American national park. Mm -hmm. Like, you can't do anything in the national park but basically go and camp and, and visit, and that's about it, right? Um, the other national parks I was reading about, ones in, in England at least, 
like you can hunt. They're managed for like grouse hunting and deer mm-hmm. hunting, and like they're not like American national parks. So um, the American version is a really great example of kind of what we're talking about with rewilding. And then imagine if you connected Yellowstone to Yosemite with the wildlife corridor. Wow. Right? Is that even possible? Well, yeah, they're on the same continent, so okay. effectively it's possible. <laughs> yeah. You but can you're get probably there from going here, to son. To, you're going to have to move some some powerful landowners like Ted Turner. He's probably not going to give up his land willingly, although I don't know, maybe he will. Um, there, there has to be like a shift in how people view the importance of wilderness and nature, and that's kind of part and parcel with the the, the concept of rewilding too. Yeah, and— a lot of this uh, research that we looked at comes from the UK and we'll talk about that more later, but um, it comes down to like a, a very smack, I'm sorry, a micro effort of going and convincing one landowner at a time almost mm-hmm. to do stuff like this. And they're having some successes in the uplands of, uh, of the UK where that, you know, kind of one at a time, some landowners are agreeing like, all right, this is what I can, I'll agree to do. And uh, for the good of everybody. Yeah, it's kind of cool, but it is a, you know, it's a pretty slow process. Like you're not going to see uh, rewilding on on the evening news uh, every night. It's a pretty, I don't know about small movement, but it's it's not mainstream. I don't think in the in the consciousness. No, but in the ecological community, it's like basically oh, yeah. being touted as the future of ecology. It's so hot. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> The the three C's, especially with the carnivores featured, that's um, that's basically descriptive of one of the two general umbrella categories for rewilding. Yeah. And that would be trophic rewilding, which we'll talk a little more about. But let's talk about passive rewilding, kind of the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of uh, taking a good look at where um, – where you should do this, like where to start, like what's mm-hmm. a good area to even try this mm-hmm. and where you can kind of go unchecked and where it will benefit people as well as the, the ecosystems around there. But the, the two main goals of the passive rewilding are to, and this is something humans do a lot, like there's a lot of wildlife protection going on. So the first part of passive rewilding is kind of that, is letting wildlife rebound and kind of get back, you know, get its its land legs back under itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that means like no hunting and stuff like that or hunting restrictions. Uh, and then letting that land grow back together like you talked about so animals can, you know, go where they once could go, like just increasing their territories. And just saying, here, nature, uh, do what you will with yourself. And that sounds yeah. super dirty. <laughs> we, turn- <laughs> we won't look. We're walking away. <laughs> yeah, we had no idea nature would do that. Right. God. So um, with passive rewilding, there's, there's, they're trying to figure out what the initial steps are because in a lot of these areas, we've done a lot. It's just kind of invisible to city slickers like you and me um, to alter the ecosystem, the landscape. So, you know, we would have to go in and like remove dams that we've built there. Mm -hmm. Um, We would have to fill in canals. Um, just anything, any way that we've altered or put a human touch on the landscape, um, we would need to basically undo before we left, or else it would still be an altered ecosystem that right. could be really problematic. Um, so if we just basically kind of restore it, then 
and then we walk away, the the idea is that it will take care of itself faster. But like you're saying, this is not a it's not a fast process. Like some of these projects that are being proposed have timelines of a couple hundred years yeah. before they they reach where they're supposed to be. That's a hard sell to people, you know. It is. It is. But again, I think it's getting easier and easier these days. I agree. Days. I agree. Uh, and part of the passive rewilding is what I was talking about in the uplands of England. Uh, that's where they're kind of going one farm at a time mm-hmm. and saying, hey, you know, 70% of England's drinking water comes from these uplands. And, you know, I think when you start describing uh, without maybe, I think you can go too far and scare people in the other direction with the doom and gloom. But if you very just sort of calmly lay out some facts and figures, I think that can wake people up sometimes. Yes. And the UK is super into this in no small part because of an ecologist. Harry and Megan? <laughs> named uh, George Mombiot. Uh-huh. I, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. He wrote a book in 2013 called Feral that basically called for rewilding, and he really popularized it over there. And since then, it's really started to kind of take off. And they have really lofty goals. Um, they have a goal of rewilding 5% of England's land, I believe, mm. by 2030, which is coming up quick. And 5%, that's a lot. It's about a million acres. And they put in perspective, they're like, there's a quarter of that is in, like, football fields in England. So, really, is that that much? <laughs> like, if you're daunted by that idea. Um, and But I, uh, that's still in eight years, converting it to, to, to a rewilded state or starting to is pretty ambitious. Yeah, I think um, you sent me that one thing that was really cool where – they sort of analyze, and this is from a UK site, I think, where they analyze, like, someone who might poo-poo this says, well, do we even have the space to do this kind of thing? <laughs> like, you know, we can't turn our cities over, again, to the to the mountain lions and just let everything grow wild. And that's not what they're talking about. But that one website, uh, I can't remember which one it was, but talking about if you could traverse the entire UK in one day, yeah, uh, England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, that... Uh, 86% of the land that you would find, you would not see many people or buildings. Uh, you would only spend about an hour and 45 minutes of that 24 hours traversing all of U- the UK, moving through urban spaces. And some of those urban spaces even have green spaces, obviously not rewilded, but green space nonetheless. Right. Uh, and 83% of the population of the UK lives on 6% of the land mass. So in other words, there is a lot of land out there to be rewilded that doesn't mean, you know, throwing wild animals in the middle of a city. Right. It's the opposite. It's throwing the humans out of the the wilderness. Yeah, exactly. You go over there right. and you built your city life where you don't breathe fresh air and you don't go outside and things like that. Well, some of the more radical proposals for rewilding is like giving over, you know, like nine-tenths of the the United States to wilderness and basically just pointing out like how many more people you can pack into the urban centers of like the East Coast and the West Coast and just like leave the middle alone as wilderness. I haven't seen that supported by many people. I think probably the guy who keeps promoting that keeps getting told to be quiet by the other (laughs) ecologists because he's going to scare off the normals, you know? American suburbs are very big and important. (laughs) <laughs> right. But it does it does really point out too, like, you know, there's there's people out there and we have their we have to take their interests into consideration. And one of the things that I kept seeing pointed out in the UK is apparently after Brexit, 
the farm subsidies for farms that that could not support themselves 100% through their own production. Mm-hmm. Um, like like it is in the U.S. and I'm sure Australia too, they were heavily subsidized by the government to yeah. make up that, that, that gap. And then after Brexit, apparently those things have been getting slashed left and right. And so people have been saying, okay, well, if we're not going to be giving them farm subsidies, what if we change the purpose of the subsidies from, you know, farming to rewilding land instead? Right. If these farms aren't producing that well anyway, and we can still produce enough food, that's a very important point, Sure. without these farms, and in fact, some of these farms would actually be way more valuable as untouched wilderness, um, then maybe it would make sense to, to take that money and convert it into that instead. And then you also have, you've also taken care of the person problem mm-hmm. because they're still being supported like they need to be, but at the same time, they also don't have to move. They just can't graze their sheep anymore. Just right. don't graze sheep anymore, and you're <laughs> going to make the same amount of money, and you can take tourists on wilderness safaris a- as a side gig. Right. I, I just pictured groundskeeper Willie staring us down from across the room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then getting on this tractor that pulls us along to point out the red deer just hopping all over the place on his rewilded land. Or he could just give us the one of the great groundskeeper Willie lines of all time from one of the uh, uh, Halloween episodes when he was Freddy Krueger. Do you remember mm-hmm. that one? Yeah, of course. <laughs> when I'm done with you, they're going to need a compost mortem. Mm. <laughs> so great. That was a good one. One of my favorite lines. Um, so a lot of the stuff we were just talking about falls under the passive rewilding. Uh, we've hit on trophic uh, rewilding, but within that, there are like – it kind of depends on how hardcore of an environmentalist you're talking to. There's something called Pleistocene rewilding yeah. where they're like, hey, <laughs> human disturbance started at the last ice age. And that should be our goal is to kind of like introduce, if not uh, woolly mammoths, like maybe a descendant of, of the woolly mammoth mm-hmm. uh, because they're not around anymore. And so you get some sort of uh, other people. I, I mean, I don't know about how heated the arguments get, but other people are like, Pleistocene uh, is really too, uh, we should really kind of move from that, like forward from there and think more along the lines of the wolves of Yellowstone than these huge megafauna. Right. So but some people the, say, no, the megafauna are, are important. Yeah. And the people who are proponents of Pleistocene rewilding um, say that it's, um, the reason that they've they've chosen that point is because they're they're suggesting that like if we go that far back, mm-hmm. we could probably defend ourselves and the planet against climate change that much more quickly, right? Or more robustly, I guess is a better way to say. It. It's not like they're just doing it out of sentimentality. Like sure. there's a there's an intellectual bent to it. Like and that is that we basically need to go that far back to counteract the damage we've done in the last like two hundred years. <laughs> sentimentality. <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. So That's there's a problem funny. with Pleistocene rewilding, though, Chuck, and that is a lot of those animals are extinct. Yeah, like the woolly mammoth. Yeah. Okay, so what are you going to do if you want to recreate the Pleistocene on the American Midwest? Let's say every state in the Midwest agrees to move eastward or westward, and they're giving up all of their land over to rewilding, mm-hmm. and we've all agreed it was Pleistocene rewilding. Well, what are we going to rewild it with if there's no such thing as a woolly mammoth? Elephants? Uh, maybe, but elephants have evolved in the last 10, 12,000 sure. years to, um, to, to live around equatorial Africa, if I'm not mistaken. So are they going to do well in Kansas? 
And then the same thing for the saber-toothed tiger. Or actually, I don't think they call him that anymore. I think it's a saber-toothed cat, maybe. Um, all of their families totally extinct. There's no descendants of the saber-toothed cats that are alive today. Mm-hmm. So what are we going to do? Put mountain lions out there? Are we going to put actual tigers out there or regular, like, African lions? And Are we going to move them over to Kansas? And then the larger problem, Chuck, the larger problem is this. Those animals, as big and scary and ferocious as they are, are mm-hmm. kind of puny compared to the actual Pleistocene megafauna, like a saber-toothed cat. Mm-hmm. And... It's not clear that they would be up to the task of managing enormous ecosystems like that just because of their smaller size. Yeah. So point. there's a lot of problems with Pleistocene rewilding. It's Bring back the megalodon for the oceans. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, there are a lot of problems with that. Uh, and you were sort of talking about, you mentioned the top-down control, uh, and that is that theory that these, you know, if you bring in an apex predator, it can really... Uh, it can be a really good thing uh, that the cascade of interactions that it can trigger is can be vast. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, that's that's trophic rewilding. It worked out pretty well for the wolves in Yellowstone uh, and the beavers that followed and the birds and the fish that followed because of the beavers. So it's a it's it's always a sterling example that people bring up. Yeah. So just to button that up, you've got passive rewilding, which is basically like just trying to get rid of your dams and bridges and stuff and then leave. And then the the trophic rewilding is where you're selectively putting back animals that used to play a role in that ecosystem Mm -hmm. or are related to ones that used to play a role, right? And then um, with a focus on those apex predators because they have so much control over the ecosystems that they live in and that that one is way more involved and needs way more thought before we start doing that. Yeah. Should we take a break? Yeah. All right. We're going to – will going <laughs> to? Jeez. We're going to take our final break, mm-hmm. and um, we'll talk about some of the issues with rewilding and some of the examples and some of the tenants. How about that? That sounds great. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for time tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. 
AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit AT&T.com slash hypergig for details. Hey everyone, Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Hey there, are you thirsty? Well, before you take a sip, have you stopped to think about what's in your water? Many conventional bottled waters contain PFAS, harmful substances known as forever chemicals. But you can drink water as clean as nature intended. Richard's rainwater collects 100% pure, refreshing drops of rain. Yes, it really is rain, everybody. This rain is caught clean before it hits the ground or becomes polluted with pesticides and contaminants commonly found in groundwater. Yep, Richard's rainwater is naturally pure with no need for harsh chemicals or additives. That means no added fluoride, no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. And you can enjoy the clean taste of Richard's still rainwater and the long-lasting cold-pressured bubbles of Richard's sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And we even have a special offer, don't we, Josh? Yeah, text STUFF to 251292887 and you'll get $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's rainwater. Sip the sky. So earlier on, we talked about one bad example of what I don't even think is rewilding with those reindeer uh, in South Georgia. Uh, There are other examples. There was one, um, because, you know, people will point to stats, people that say this isn't a good idea will say that, hey, the failure rate for introductions and reintroductions in nature is higher than 70%. And we don't even really have a lot of data if this works out anyway. And 70% is pretty high. And look at the, um, look about what, look at what happened in Argentina in the 1940s when they brought these Canadian beavers in and they ran wild and destroyed the forest. People uh, who know what they're talking about will say, that's an invasive species. And mm-hmm. when the beaver in Yellowstone eat the willow tree, the willow tree grows back. When they eat these beech trees here in Argentina, they don't grow back. So you just have a wasteland. It's not, dropping invasive species down into another place where they were never supposed to be to begin with. Yeah, it's supposed to be a little more thought out than that. That like like I was saying before the break, like these are carefully selected and carefully thought out or they're meant to be um, animals that are that fill specific niches in the ecosystem that you're trying to restore. That's right. Not dropping beavers in South America, <laughs> Canadian beavers no less. Yeah, one thing that really spoke to me was uh in that additional material that you sent over, uh, I think it was the four tenants, uh, uh, Rewilding Britain, I think was the website. Uh-huh. Uh, and their four tenants um, are pretty self-explanatory, but one part of part two really spoke to me. The first one is support people and nature together. Uh, the second one is let nature lead. And uh, the line that really got me was, it, it is not geared to reach any human-defined optimal point mm. or end state. It goes where nature takes it, and then that ties in with number four. Number three is cre- uh, create resilient local economies. It's mm-hmm. a big part of it. But number four is uh, work at nature scale. Like, 
I think humans are so obsessed with scale in business, and they're basically saying, you got to do what nature, uh, let nature do what nature does at its own pace yeah. and at its own scale. That's nature's scale, and just let it do it. Don't put, don't put your hang-ups on nature, man, on what you want it to be. Right. <laughs> and that's kind of true, though. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I think I think though that that kind of reveals like the the um lack of consensus in the field of rewilding because uh, what did you say that was rewilding Britain's four points? Yeah, there were actually five. The fifth one was secure benefits for the long term. Okay, yeah, five. And then I saw the uh Union of the Conservation of Nature. Yeah, I think that's it. I think that was um, it, yeah. Uh they uh they have 10, 10 points. Yeah. So you got five, you got 10, depending on who you ask. But they all generally agree that before we really start doing this stuff in earnest, like we need more data. Like most of the people who are like, yeah, we just, you know, release some voles into the into the woods. There's some rewilding project right there. Like th- these are the people who aren't necessarily even thinking it through. Yeah. If you're a conservation ecologist, if you're a biologist, if you're a botanist, if you're a scientist who's like, actually looking at rewilding, you, pretty much everyone agrees, like, we need way more data than we have right now. That is right. a great idea. We just need way more data. It, the science just isn't even there. Yeah, but, you know, one of the tenets that they both, it seems like everyone is talking about, is talk to the local people. They call them stakeholders. Yeah. Talk to the local stakeholders because you can't just come in there uh, with your, you know, with your, science under your arm in your folder and just say, this is how it's going to go. Like it's got to work for the people and you have to get them involved and on board or it's just not going to work. Yeah. Don't even try that in Scotland, everybody. (laughs) Oh man. Don't mess with their sheep. You got anything else? I got nothing else. Uh, Well, maybe this last little bit uh, from that stuff you sent 77% in increasing uh, of the uh, human population lives in urban areas. Mm Mm-hmm. And they spend uh, 90% of their time indoors. 77% of humans spend 90% of their time indoors. And just the health effects and the the role, uh, the trickle-down effects from that, uh, we've talked about a lot. But people need to be out in nature. Uh, Mental and physical illness, Mm -hmm. depression, heart disease, anxiety, fatigue, uh, obesity, ADHD, like you name it. Like a lot can be not wholly attributed to this, but certainly has an impact on people that, and I'm a city guy, you are too. Like I I love my urban areas, but Mm -hmm. uh, people need to get outdoors more. And this is a good way to do it, I think. Yeah, but that's a fine line you've got to walk because we're giving this stuff over to nature. So we have to ask ourselves, what, what role, what place do we have in these wildernesses that we're creating. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that 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 rewilding ecologists are excited about is it that would cause us to to rethink that. That would be like, well, wait a minute, I don't want to be indoors all the time. Well, wait a minute, I'm already indoors all the time. I need to get out there and and now there's yeah. a place for them to go. So, yeah, I think that's another big question mark that we'd have to figure out too. That's right. Um, well, that's it for rewilding for now. Give it another five years, maybe we'll come back to it, everybody. And since I said that, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this what the author called it: "Lesbians in the Military." Okay. 
Uh, Hi, guys. Really enjoyed your podcast about the term friend of Dorothy and wanted to add something to your discussion about gay men in the military. Uh, And this is probably on us for just sort of saying gay men in the military. Uh, But there were many lesbians in the military during World War II, as well as people who uh, we would now describe as bisexual women, transmasculine people, and others. Uh, The military was a safe place for queer women and AFAB, uh, assigned female at birth people, since it was somewhat of an escape from mainstream society that expected women to dress and present femininely and marry men. Never considered this. It's pretty great. Uh, This article is a great summary of the history. Thought you might find it interesting. Uh, And the name of the article, I just clicked the link, is called, uh, and this is from outhistory.org, Lesbians, comma, not colon, uh, (laughs) World War II and Beyond. And this is from Rebecca, a friend of Dorothy. Nice. Thanks a lot, Rebecca. We're a friend of Rebecca who's a friend of Dorothy. That's right. It's hard to keep track, but let's just all be friends. That's pretty great. Um, Thank you for that email, Rebecca. And if you want to be like us and point out something we hadn't considered before, we love that kind of stuff. You can wrap it up and send it in an email to stuffpodcasts at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. Childproofing people's homes is hard, but Duracell is making it just a bit simpler. Not only are they committed to educating parents, caregivers, and medical professionals about the importance of battery safety, they make the only lithium coin batteries with a non-toxic bitter coating to help discourage children from swallowing them. Duracell even features child secure packaging designed to avoid accidental opening. Learn more at Duracell.com slash power safely. Available on 2032, 2025, and 2016 sizes. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you. And how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.